All right, you guys, we're going to be picking up our study of the apocalypse of Jesus back in chapter 13 tonight. So first, remember what's going on here. The Apostle John is explaining theological truth via apocalyptic imagery that he is being shown from God. And it's concerning the church militant. It's the people of God who exist in this present evil age between Christ's first and second coming. And he's doing this through these characters. For there's the offspring of the woman, uh, who is the church. There is the dragon, who is Satan, who was already defeated by Christ on the cross and his resurrection and ascension. And then there's the two beasts that we read of, who in chapter 13, who are empowered by the dragon, who is in his defeated and now like enraged state. And so last week, we got through verse 4 in chapter 13, and we saw that this first beast was descriptive of Rome under the rule of Caesar Nero in light of the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And that means that this first beast is descriptive of satanically empowered governments that oppose the rule and reign of the kingdom of God. And people end up following that beast. And in doing so, they worship Satan, even if they don't know or they're not aware of it really happening. That's the spiritual reality behind what went on in Rome in the 60s AD before John was even given this vision in 90 AD. And also, it is what is going on and happening in any culture that is opposing the rule and the reign of Christ. That's John's point. And so beginning in verse 5, we see the kinds of actions that we should expect from this first beast. But we, don't have, um, we didn't have time to cover the whole section last week, so we're going to read... 5 through 10 again, which again focus on the actions of this beast, and that will be our text for this evening. So let's read and pray the reading of God's word beginning at verse 5 in Revelation 13. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was, it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's ask his blessing as we continue in it. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for your word. It is true and right. We thank you for preserving it, and we ask for understanding, especially knowing the difficulty of apocalyptic literature. We pray that you would make it plain for us, Lord, that we might grow in our understanding and that will lead to greater doxology and love for you and worship of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, verse five. The beast is given a mouth, we read. And we're to see that then as either being permitted by the sovereign decree of God or it's speaking of the power that it was given from the dragon. In a way, it's, it's kind of both of those things, really. Certainly, Satan is not outside of God's control. And with this mouth, we read that the beast utters haughty and blasphemous words, which is what Satan likes to see happen, what he likes to do. 
Words that minimize God. Words that conceal the truth. Instead of, and instead of people being confronted with the reality of who God is, they are presented with lies and deception. They're deceived into putting their trust into the beast and what it says is right. And it's doing this. It, it has this power to do this for 42 months, we read. Again, that's that familiar period, right? That 42 months, the same thing as three and a half years, 1,260 days. 42 months is the time period of the church's existence in this present evil age. The great tribulation that we are in. The time in between Jesus' first and second coming. And it has this power, this right, this purpose during this whole time period. It's not going to start at some point in the future, like when things get really bad. It's not going to stop at some point in the future, you know, like if just enough people are saved and then they're able to pass the right kind of holy laws. It's the whole period of time in between the first and second coming of Christ that this beast is going to act this way. It's not going to play out the same, of course, in every place and in every nation, but generally... Across the whole world, this is what is occurring. The beast has been given this mouth to utter haughty and blasphemous words, things that would deceive people and minimize who God is. And in this whole time period, satanically empowered governments will be preoccupied with drawing away the worship of mankind, saying blasphemous things about God and the church. It's not hard for us, I think, to think of those kinds of things existing today, even in our culture, in our society, right? Uh, From an outright rejection of God's existence with things like evolution and and that whole atheistic mindset that is popular in our culture, uh, to the downplaying of what God's word says and the ostracizing and silencing of believers, all things that we have been seeing happening and happening in abundance today. And so, and so what are those things? Are they like meaningless nothings? Is it just coincidence? Just random events? No, not at all. John is telling us that they are indicative of the spiritual war that the church is in right now. This is part of how Satan seeks to harm the church. And more than just this, right? Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive... To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. All these kinds of things have been happening for 2,000 years, and they will continue to happen until Christ comes again to right all the wrongs of the world and to usher in the eternal age. But until then, until that event, the parousia, these kinds of satanic activities that happen in which Satan through the first beast, that is, governments who are opposed to God at varying levels, they are attacking the seed, the spiritual seed of the woman, who again is the church. <coughs> not so much our own personal sins, that's not what we're thinking of here, thinking of what Satan is actively doing through governments. Often our own sins are the result of us being enticed and influenced by our own flesh and being attracted to the displays of the satanic spirit of the age that dominate our flesh, James 1.14. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and lured and enticed by his own desire. And that's a spiritual battle as well. 
But what we are given here from John in chapter 13 with this first beast and the second beast as well is the enemy's playbook. So, and the reason for that is so that we can know what the enemy's plans are and then act to avoid them, to not subject ourselves to it. And the reason being is that it's a smart thing to do that is because we are, we are weak, friends. We are not as strong as we might think that we are so that we can resist these types of things that the beast is put into play. We're not as strong as we think. And giving ourselves over and subjecting ourselves to these haughty and blasphemous ideas, ways, words, powers, and principalities that are championed by, in the world, these things that often have to do with sex and power, is a recipe for pain and suffering. This is a war that we are in. And don't forget that. The church is the enemy of the beast. Verse 6, the, the beast that opened up its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. In other words, Christians, those who dwell in heaven. That's to be contrasted with verse 8, those who dwell on the earth and worship the beast. Those who dwell in heaven worship God. And it's not saying that Christians are only those people who are in heaven. For after all, <coughs> the beast is blaspheming God, and the Lord God is always with his people, no matter our address. And that is one of the benefits of the gospel that Christ has won for us, even. As a matter of fact, we, we never need to pray for God to be with someone who is saved. And we kind of do that all the time. God be with so-and-so, God be with so-and-so, you hear that. But technically speaking, we never need to do that because God has promised to always be with us. Remember in the Great Commission, go, the, go therefore into the world, and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and behold, I am always with you. It would be like praying in a sense, you know, God, please be sovereign over that. It's kind of silly, right? Because he is always sovereign over, over things. God is with his people. And so that is part of the reason as to why the beast blasphemes his dwelling. Or think of the Apostle Paul's explanation of the church in Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. There he writes about the church, how it's together, it's joined together, how it builds itself up. And in 21 he says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, it's not hard, I think, for us to think of satanically, the satanically empowered state blaspheming the Lord's dwelling place, the church. There are whole countries that exist today that make it illegal for people to practice Christianity. But even in our own country, even here in the United States, it's not uncommon for like, politicians to speak evil of Christianity, especially on the democratic and liberal side of the aisle. And that's not the only place where it happens. Even on the conservative side of the aisle, God and his people are sometimes blasphemed when these people teach or promote heresy or heretics. These are the types of things that John is speaking of here as well. In addition to the culture that a nation may have with its entertainment and its arts that are often deceiving the masses as well and, and numbing us to what is actually sinful. But the point is, 
is that we shouldn't just think the things that are happening are, are just are not spiritual acts, that they're not spiritual events that are impacting the church and what's going on. There, this battle is going on all the time. Will we see it? John is trying to help us to see it. Verse 7, though, the beast is allowed to make war on the saints. God is sovereign. Don't forget that this happens in God's planning, and the beast is permitted to conquer the church all over the world, we read, which is interesting because we've spoken at length in Revelation so far up to this point about how it is that the saints are actually conquering through Christ in the world. And now we are, are and how we're received into heaven as victorious conquerors based upon what Jesus has done for us. Revelation 12, 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So, what is this referring to then when it says the beast is going to conquer the church? It must be in light of what verse 7 is setting up. That is what is revealed in verse 10 and the physical persecution that will often come upon the church, even unto death, as Revelation twelve eleven said. John's original audience were already dealing with that, right? I mean, remember John himself, he's exiled on an island called Patmos after being tortured He's there because of his faith in Christ. And the church and other parts of the world today deal with this on a daily basis as well. And this happens not by some random permission or coincidence. These kinds of things come about because of the authority given to the beast, the power that he receives from the dragon. And there's also a contrast in verse 7 of the, the scope of this beast with the ministry of the church in this time as well. So we read there in verse 7 <coughs> that authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Now, that's a familiar phrase in Revelation. It's speaking about the scope of the war and the authority that over the nations that the beast has, but that's not the way we normally see it here in this book. Or actually, even in the prophecy of Daniel, which this section is being built off of and based on, which we mentioned last week. Daniel, in chapter 7, and he's speaking of the Ancient of Days, who is the Messiah. He says in 7.14, And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom, and here's the phrase, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then... That same notion of that same scope is applied to Christ's work in the apocalypse, Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from ev for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hands. So, in other words, the reality is that the beast, the satanically empowered state, will have authority over the nations, even getting worshipped by them, and in so 
even bringing about the persecution and tribulation against the church, but that doesn't mean that the elect won't be saved, that the church won't be saved. We are being shown this so that we can know what to expect. This is the enemy's playbook. But don't forget, Christ still has his people, and his people will be saved through his gospel. And even though the beast is allowed to make war against them and receive worship from the world, Christ still has victory, even over that same exact scope of people and languages and nations that's been mentioned. Notice verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship it, it being the beast. But that's not all as in every single person possible. Remember, it's being contrasted with verse 6, those who dwell in heaven. And look what it says about all those who dwell on the earth. It says that, it says this of them, whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So those who dwell on the earth, those who are at the end of the day then worshiping Satan, right? Because they're worshiping the beast who's been empowered by the dragon, who is Satan, and, and whatever it is that Satan has empowered. In some sense, whether they know it or not, they're, they're worshiping him. But we read that they are people whose names were not written in the book of life. And note when the names were written in it. It's not whose names were written, in it, who were written in it after the Lord saw their response to the beast. It's not whose names were written because of their superior spirituality or because of their good works and their piety. No, they were written before the foundation of the world. And I think that if we can be honest here and acknowledge that that is a somewhat tough thing to understand to comprehend for us verse 9 says if anyone has an ear let him hear that's not just a verse 9 follows up that verse 8 which talks about their names not being written in this book from before the foundation of the world and when it speaks of an ear here it's not just speaking of a physical ear but what it is is a call to be spiritually discerning it's A call to listen with a heart of faith. And this notion is not new in the apocalypse. We find the same phrase in the section that was addressed to the seven original church audiences of the the letter a number of times. I think six times, five or six times. A couple examples. Revelation 2.11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 2.17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 3.6, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So then, considering this phrase in both of its uses, what it is is a way in which we are being reminded of where our hope actually comes from. It's what's being said to the churches. That's how one has this sort of an ear. That's how they hear, because they are part of the church. They have been redeemed, and they are resting in Christ for their justification and every blessing that comes with their salvation. And it's the same thing that Jesus often said in conjunction with the parables that he taught. You remember that, right? Hopefully, 
uh, after the example of a parable, which was given for the purpose of instructing his people and keeping those who weren't his people in the dark. That's Matthew 13, 10. Jesus would often say, after the end of the parable, he who has an ear, let him hear. Or he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And part of that is also in accord with what the Messiah was prophesied to do, that he would open up the eyes of the blind and the ear of the deaf. And what all this means is that to be spiritually discerning, to hear and to understand these things, is a gift from God. If you have an ear to hear, to believe, to truly believe and trust, this has been given to you. And here in Revelation 13, we're reminded of this once again. And notice how it's sandwiched in between verse 8 and 10. Remember, verses aren't actually, verse numbers aren't actually there. That was added many hundreds of years after the canon of Scripture was revealed. But when they did this, they, it, it's right, verse 8, the sentence in verse 8, and the sentence in verse 10 is sandwiched. Is like bread, and this little verse, he who has ears to hear, let them hear, is right in between them. Verse 10, or verse 8, I mean, explains that all the unsaved, those who dwell on the earth, whose names were not written in the book of life of the Lamb, that they will worship the beast. And then in verse 10, which explains how the church will suffer in this age at times, and how this is also a call for endurance and faith in their lives. So, can you imagine, for a moment, having to endure and have faith through captivity and martyrdom? We know, of course, that the church has done it in the past. We see types of it in the Old Covenant, even, and the the history of the nation of Israel. And then, as well, in church history, uh, after the cross, there's countless examples of it. We talked about Polycarp um, months ago, and even that one missionary to India a few months ago as well. But imagine, verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. God is sovereign. His his decree, his will is being played out in providence, and sometimes in this age, It means those kinds of things, even for people who love the Lord. And those kinds of things, then, they don't mean that God's favor is not on you, or that you're being punished for sin, or that you're being punished for disobedience. Stephen Charnock, in his book Divine Providence, says, Because the ways of God are beyond human comprehension, Much of what he does seems counterintuitive to us, yet it's always right. I think Charnock is correct there. The reality is that it could simply be God's sovereign will in his building of the church. And think, humanly, humanly, it would be very, very, very easy and plausible when faced with trials like that, captivity or death before you, to not endure, to have a fear of man come up in you so as to preserve your own life. Of course, you know, the Bible says to fear him who can kill the body and the soul, which means God. But we look at the course of history, and we even 
saw that in that video on the church, how even at one point in history where many people who were professing faith in Christ denied Christ at the, at the reality of being uh, possibly put to death for their faith. And so we could see how that would happen. John obviously knows that could happen. God knows that could happen. And so this is a pastoral point, really, that we're being made aware of here in chapter 13 in setting up verses 8 through 10. John is wanting, and the Holy Spirit is wanting to encourage the church in light of the suffering that we will endure from the world who is worshiping the beast. Earlier, earlier in Revelation, again, in that portion with the original audience, which you remember, I hope, it was certainly true for them, but it also served as examples for the church throughout this age. Well, Jesus said there, and this is Revelation 2.10, he said to one of those seven churches, he said, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. There's that, that call for endurance and faith, but just said a little differently with the saints. But to understand John's point here, we need to see that what is being said in, in verse 8, what verse 9 is directing us to for encouragement so that we would endure and have faith, is not because of something great in us, but it's actually because of the great love and mercy of God toward us, even in light of the fact that we may be faced with imprisonment and death for our faith in God. You see, those who dwell on the earth and worship the beast, their names were not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. But that means that others were. That there are some who because of grace, whose names were written in the book, people who Jesus' sacrifice was made for, right? It's, it's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The names in the book are those who have life in light of the Lamb who was slain. It's, it's attaching it to Christ's work of atonement. And so, by the way, I mean, this verse makes a strong case for the doctrine of limited atonement, doesn't it? Again, it's the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And not everyone's name was written in it. Some names, but not all, were written in it before the foundation of the world. Other names just were not written in it. And so logically, if Jesus was in fact slain for everybody, if he died for everybody, as some people claim, then why wouldn't their names be written in this book? And then I guess erased or at some point, to have it blotted out. Now, notice, this text doesn't actually allow for that. It specifically says that their names were not written in it. It doesn't say anything about being erased, right? It doesn't say anything about their names being blotted out. God's not learning along the way. He knows all things, and that's because he's decreed all things. But almost a year ago, maybe like 40 weeks or so ago, we did read about God blotting names out of the book of life. And I said then that I would address the book of life more fully later, which we're doing tonight. And so if you remember, Revelation 3, 5 says this, 
the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So does that mean God erases some people? That he blots them out? No, not even close. The conquering that keeps you from being blotted out is guaranteed by your name being in the book. That's the point of Revelation 13.8. Being in the book keeps you from doing what would get you erased from the book if you did it, if that was even possible. So let me say that again. Being in the book, having your name in this book of life, keeps you from doing what would get you erased from the book if you did it, like failing to conquer. And that is not a contradiction any more than it would be for Paul to, when, he make, when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It's not nonsense to state the condition. If you conquer, God will not erase your name. And then to state the assurance, if your name is in the book, you will conquer. They will endure and keep the faith. That's not a contradiction. God's written down ones really must endure and they really will conquer. They must and they will. One side highlights responsibility. You must. And one side highlights God's sovereignty. You will. And of course, as we've said before, God perseveres us through warnings like these in the the book. When when God says to someone who's truly a believer, if you do not overcome, well, that is the Spirit's motivating you as well to do what overcoming means and to rest and to trust in Christ. And so the message for us here is this. The, the Christian life does not promise a suffering-free experience. Those theologians of glory that, who teach that following Christ here and now entails nothing but material and temporal blessing are, are more than mistaken. They're more than wrong. They're teaching a false gospel. The prosperity gospel people, the name it and claim it people, all very dangerous. Because you see, it could be God's will that you as a Christian meet the same fate as the apostles. It could be God's will that you meet the same sort of persecution that Christians did under Nero. It could be that you are met with the same violence that your master, Jesus himself, was met with. But here's the point that we see at the end of the passage. It's it's to take heart. Your names were written in the book of life of the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. You're not the ones who worship the beast and dwell on the earth. There is a call for endurance and faith for the saints. It's not an empty endurance or some abstract faith. It's a faithful enduring because you believe the gospel. You know that you're a sinner and that your sin is of great offense to the Lord. But also, your sin has been paid for by Christ, by Christ Jesus and his holy life. His righteousness is yours by the faith that he supplies and that can't be taken away from you. Captivity can't take that away from you. The sword can't take that away from you. Death can't take that from you. 
Your name was written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb slain. Not because of anything that you have done. You didn't exist when that happened. Not because of anything that God would see in you doing either. Because God chose you out of the mass of wicked, rebellious sinners, which you were a part of. And not even to say that this is actually necessarily a literal book. Maybe it is. I don't know. But it's explaining the surety that we should have as people who are trusting Christ in our salvation. And we should be clear here as well, people who are saved, we should see them as at one point being under the authority of the beast and even worshiping him at some point. But when the work of Christ's atonement is applied to them, that is no longer the case. Desires are changed in the saved person. The law of God becomes a delight, a joy to the person who is saved. And over time, the things that lost people enjoy, those who dwell on the earth, those things that are often celebrated in the world and those people in the world participate in them, they become offensive and under, undesirable to you. God sanctifies you by his free grace and he conforms you to Christ in such a way that you are grieved by the sin that remains in your life and you pursue personal holiness and righteousness. And so whereas everyone is born in rebellion to God, everyone is by nature a child of wrath, right? Ephesians 2. Until God saves them, that is, they are worshiping the beast and the dragon in, in some way, and they don't give true worship and honor to the one true God. But when you are saved, then your dwelling is in heaven, as Revelation 13 says, and you are God's dwelling place um, along with the rest of the church and that knowledge friends that information that when you receive christ and you are saved by god that that knowledge that your name from before the foundation of the world was written in the book of life of the lamb slain that is something that will help you to endure the trial that is before you that faith is what enables you to bear the heavy hand of the beast and to still rest and trust in Christ through it all. From before the foundation of the world. Understanding this made the Apostle Paul to break out in doxology and to bless God's name for the great love with which he loved us, his church, and in writing their names in this book of life. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 through 5. You might be familiar with this. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. In love, we were predestined for adoption. God's love for us did that. In other words, in love, we were written in the book of life of the Lamb slain. How else could we be holy and blameless before the Father if not being united to the Son and obtaining the Son, Jesus Christ's righteous standard through the faith that he supplies to us? That's the promise that we have from God that we would be justified, 
that we would be declared righteous on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished. That we would be then holy and blameless before God because Jesus is holy and blameless before God. That we, because of Jesus, would have peace with God. Jesus, speaking about the plight of his disciples after his crucifixion, said this in John 16, He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That is true for, for more than just his disciples right after the crucifixion. It is true at varying levels for all Christians throughout this age. And we should thank God for his mercy when we don't have it very bad. And also, when we're confronted with attacks from people who worship the beast, what we do is we rest in the promises of God that we have in his word. Because, because we have peace with him. And we're comforted in that. Knowing that whatever might happen here and now, whatever the beast and the dragon may do, we are his written down ones. And nothing can change that. Let's pray. Gracious and holy God, we understand that you are all wise and that your ways are not our ways. And so certainly it is not our desire or hope to have to suffer Uh, for what we believe. We understand, Lord, though, that not everyone does believe and that many are opposed to you and and unto your people. And so we ask, Lord, that you would encourage us in your word to be able to endure through any sort of trial that we go through. We pray, Lord, that your church would uh, glorify your holy name at every opportunity and that you would strengthen her all for Christ's sake and that you would help us to be fully satisfied knowing that because of what you have done, uh, we are secure in your hand and nothing can take us from your hand and nothing can separate us from the great love with which you have loved us. So to you be all glory, honor, and praise. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right. So any, um, anything that I can maybe try to clarify, explain a little bit better? Makes sense. Why do we still have to be saved if we were already written in the book of life from the beginning of time? Okay, that's a good question. So why, you hear him, why do we have to be saved if we were already written in the book of life for the foundation of the world or before time? And the reason I think that's the case is because God was, is bringing about all of history for the glory of his son, so that he would be exalted. And so God had decreed that certain people would be saved, right? He wrote their names in this book, but they're not actually saved until it happens in time. And so think about what didn't happen when God wrote, you know, and again, did he literally, is there literally a book that can be opened up and see people's names in it? I don't know. Maybe, but think if that's before the foundation of the world, what hadn't happened at that point? There was no fall, right? So for the, there had to have then been a fall as well. Adam had to have sinned in the garden. 
And that was, again, that's not an accident. We call it the Felix Culpa, sometimes the fortunate fall, that that was happening. Also, we would understand more of who God is. And so God uses all these things, so again, to bring more, give glory to him so that we would worship him more and adore him more. Because think of it, if it didn't happen this way, then we would, you know, we would just know God and his perfect goodness and righteousness and his holiness and I guess all of those other attributes that explain his grandeur, but we wouldn't know grace and mercy. Um, because the reality is, like Ephesians 2 said, and like, like John's alluding to here in this text as well too, that people who aren't saved are worshiping this beast. They're worshiping Satan in that as well. Even if they're not like, you know, going to, there's not like a, a church of the state, a church of the government here in America at least, right? But by their refusal to worship Christ, they are in fact worshiping the beast in this state and Satan is behind that. And so through all of that, you know, God saves everyone who is saved out of that because nobody is just born saved even, right? Everyone has to be converted. They're, they're born again. They receive Christ. They have faith. Um, and at that point, then they're desiring to, to worship God. But before that, nobody just does that. It's a little bit different, I think, sometimes, or, or maybe difficult to see or understand in sometimes a Christian family context. Because for most of you guys that I'm looking around here and looking at, all of your parents you know, have been bringing you to church since you were little babies. And that's all you know. You know, so you might think to yourself, well, I've never really, you know, been someone who's been outside the church. But the reality is, is until you have that moment in your life where you are truly trusting and resting in Christ, um, then, you know, you're under that authority and worshiping the beast, as he was saying then. But so it happens. So why did God, circling back, why did God do it then have to save you in time? Why not before? Because of the God's decree happened before anything was created but then it plays out through history and like i said then it comes the fall and then god saves us he redeems us which gives again gives us a greater reason and more reason to love god like why would god save us we didn't do anything good to deserve it he didn't look at us say oh man like ethan you're you're gonna love me so perfectly i'm just gonna save you well no like that that wouldn't have been your desire you know if, if, if he's not showing you how lovely he is and, and making you alive through his spirit, then you wouldn't have done that. So it's about him receiving the glory in, in our salvation. That's a good question. It's like predestination like in the whole chain. Yeah. Predestination is before. Right, well, we talked about that when we were looking at the canons of Dort, right? Uh, the golden chain in Romans 8.30. All who were predestined were called, were justified, were glorified. Anything else, guys? So next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the second beast. Because again, there's, there's these two beasts. The first beast being modeled after Rome under Nero with that prophecy of Daniel helps us to see that it's these satanically empowered governments. Next week, we'll look at the second beast, which is a little bit different. Lord willing. The Pope? The, that's going to be where I end up going, yeah. Part of where I end up going, certainly.